And I've had people ask me, you know, what's it like? What's it like to die? Have you been with people who've died? You know, yes, I have. What's it like? You know, kind of. And, and you know, they clearly have wanted to ask that probably for quite a while, but maybe haven't asked because they're, you know, protecting family members. And what is it like? This is a GK Media podcast. <laughs> Hilary Neville, a night nurse in the community for over 25 years. Thank you for joining me on Gary Talks today. Thanks, Gary. Lovely to be here. Lovely to meet you again. Yeah. We met earlier in the year because we did a video with you for Palliative Care Week for the All-Ireland Hospice and Palliative Care team. Yes. And I was just fascinated by your stories yeah. from working as a night nurse in the community and, you know, helping people who are availing of palliative care and... Mm -hmm you're really there with people when they're at their most vulnerable in life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it really is kind of, I suppose I went into it blind, not really knowing it was all very new to me, kind of, I was just looking to get back into work, you know, with small children and I had no experience in this area. But the very first night it resonated with me, kind of, you know, what a privileged place we were in and, you know, that we were going into people's homes when this almighty event was happening. You know, and really we're guests in their home, but they open the door and let us in. And, you know, it, it, it's an incredible job. It really, really is kind of when you you end up having fabulous conversations like my very, very first night when I arrived, you know, really not knowing what I was doing. Like I, I knew how to be a nurse, but I had never been in this position where I was just, you know, on my own in the community, kind of with the family. And when I arrived, it was in Dublin, this elderly man just kind of opened the door a little bit and said to me, are you the night nurse? And I said, yeah. And he just looked at me and says, I think she's dead. And I kind of froze. And he said, come in and tell me. And he went up the stairs ahead of me. And I remember thinking, oh, I hope to God I know. I hope to God I'm able to call this, you know, will I know? Because, you know, it was outside of my experience. And when I went in, I could clearly see she had passed away, kind of, and I confirmed that she died and kind of stood by the bedside for a little while. And, you know, kind of, he, he was very sort of practical about it. I think she was in her late 70s and he was early 80s. And I said, would you like me to ring anyone? No, no, I sent them home. Sure, it's grand. I'll fill them in in the morning. And I said, well, can I do anything for you now? I said, will I, will I freshen her up and change her nightie and you who's going to keep her in the house overnight? Do, yeah, do. So we did that together. And then we went downstairs and he made a cup of tea and we sat at the table and he told me about their life together. And I was just completely hooked. I thought, mm. wow, you know, just this incredible moment in this man's life, this family's life. And I was privy to this. So, yeah, I have to say I was hooked from day one. I'm assuming that they were married for many, many years, yeah, lifelong friends and partner. And then yeah. just like that, she's passed away. Yeah. And just like that, kind of like there's there's a gap. The community finish working, you know, five, six, maybe seven in the evening, kind of the night nurses come on at 11. So there is a gap in between. And, you know, at the time, you know, it would have been landlines, et cetera, et cetera, kind of, you know, whereas now we have mobiles kind mm. of, you know, and we'd have he'd have a number to phone now kind of in between. But really, you know, once I was turning up, kind of I was going to be the first person and she hadn't long passed away when I died, when, when I arrived and <laughs> <when> I died. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, kind of I was able to say, yes, you know, she has definitely died. Like, you know, you see in hospital people use stethoscopes and all the rest kind of I don't carry a stethoscope with me. 
you know, when someone has died, you know, kind of it's as simple as that. So, you know, kind of I made the call anyway. And yeah, and he told me all about it. I remember him going into her drawer looking, oh, she loved this nighty, And he pulled out this nighty, you know, and we washed her and changed her kind of and freshened her up kind of. And he didn't want to phone anyone. He was just being practical. No, no, I sent them home a while ago and I told him, should they ring me in the morning? And I'll tell them he didn't want to pull them back out of bed. Now, lots of families would take someone back at night, but not everybody, mm. you know, certainly not everybody. And he was going to go off to bed himself when I left. In the in, room no, with her? No, or? he was going into another room. Okay, he was okay. going into another room. Yeah, he was going in. Oh, I'll go in and lie down here now for a little while. I'll get rest. You will be busy for the next few days. I can still clearly, it was a really small house that kind of the stairs led down to the front door and he was actually still standing on the stairs when he opened the door. You know, I can clearly remember him so clearly. So you were a nurse beforehand? Yes. Yeah. I trained as a general nurse in St. James's Hospital. Okay. Yeah. yeah trained in, in St. James's Hospital in celebrating 40 years this week since I started nursing, which is giving away Congrats. my age. So yeah, great memory. A lovely hospital, had a great training, thoroughly enjoyed it, kind of still in contact with a lot of my group. And then when I finished my training there, I went back and staffed there for a little while, but it was 80s, recession, et cetera, et cetera. So getting a permanent job was going to be difficult. And I went to England. Like a lot of, you know, a lot of my class headed away England, some went to Australia, America. And I went to England. I did another course in England, stayed there for three years and then went to the Middle East. So I had six years in the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So and, it was great. And where in the Middle East? Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Okay. Yeah. I met my husband my now husband, who was my boyfriend when I finished my training, but he had already signed up to go to the Middle East working just as I was doing my finals. So I kind of, you know, qualified, started to work in Dublin, then went to England. He came home on holidays and the plan was I'd go get a contract in Saudi Arabia and go out to him. But I loved my job in England so much. I wanted to stay on and do a course. And then we got married then in 1990. And I said, I had gone out for six months just to have a look at it and see Why Jeddah? I it. Like it must have been the middle of nowhere back then. Jeddah's on the coast yeah. and it, he was working for civil aviation at the time. So it was, there was a lot of Irish in Jeddah. There was a lot in the civil aviation area. The guys in the Air Corps, had, so he was ex-Air Corps and the Air Corps had started, kind of lads had started going over to the Middle East working for, he went out teaching initially. He was teaching um I think it was aeronautical engineering or mm. electronic engineering, actually. And then he um, moved over then to the um, air traffic control side of it around all the computers and all that sort of thing. I'm not really too sure what yeah. he did, to be honest. But he went out there, really enjoyed it. And I went out and nursed. And it was just it was beautiful, like a big city. I'd love to see it now, actually. We're talking of yeah. going back to have a look because it has opened up so much now. But then it was, you know, very traditional kind of. Now, we were lucky in Jeddah. It was a little bit more laid back than Riyadh. I didn't have to cover my head. And, you okay. know, you could be stopped sometimes and they'd say cover your head. But our hospital had supporters and told us you don't have to. You know, you have to be dressed modestly, mm. but you don't have to. So, yeah, he went out there for two years and I did my six month stint in that two years. And then when we got married, we said, oh, let's go back for another year. So we did another six years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was good. And were you making yeah. good money there then? Yeah, you made, yeah, the money was tax free. Your accommodation was provided. Like it was actually cheaper to buy petrol than it was drinking water, you know, and the drinking water was really cheap. We used to fill the car 
four and five times a week because we were always on the road. And, you know, you lived in the compound and it was, you know, westernized. You know, you, you did whatever you like. We partied like maniacs there. Mm. We made great beer, made great wine, even though it was alcohol free. And, you know, kind of it was a fun place to be. We were right on the coast. We both learned to scuba dive. We used to sail. It was just a really, really fun place to be. And we did a lot of travel from there as well. You know, it was a great spot to you know go further east mm. and down into Africa. So, yeah, we, we had a great time there. We thoroughly enjoyed it. But we knew all along we'd come home. You know, the goal was always to come home. Because when, you want to start a family, is it? Or? Yeah, we came home when I was expecting our first baby, but it was great fun, but it wasn't really reality. You know, kind yeah, of, yeah. I, you know, it, it was it was a fun, fun place. But I always felt it kind of lacked a bit of reality. There was always an element of people could reinvent who they were, you know, kind of over there. And for a place that was supposed to be alcohol free, there was not a lot of alcoholics <laughs> who I'm sure probably went out thinking that it would get them away from it. Yeah. But, you know, there, there was a lot of drinking went on there and probably because it was forbidden. You know, you weren't officially allowed yeah. to drink. So therefore, you know, you had to make it work. And you did. You're a mom of five children. I'm a mom of five. I am. Yeah. <laughs> For my sins. <laughs> yeah. Busy house now. We've only one left at home now. But Some of them have gone overseas now themselves, haven't they? They have. Yeah. The The eldest lad is in Germany. He's working in Germany since last January. The next girl has gone to Melbourne since the 1st of September. Uh, the next one down is in London. And then uh, my second daughter is in Belfast doing her master's. So we've only one at home. <laughs> Very quiet house. I wonder how difficult it is for a parent, you know, if a mother of five children where four of them have already left the nest and three of them are physically not living on the island anymore. Yeah, like I, I think probably because I travelled myself, kind of, I, you know, I never minded travelling. I was happy to move on. I saw it all as an adventure. And I think they're at that stage now as well. So kind of I wouldn't, I wouldn't not want them to go. And I think it's good to go. You know, I I, I kind of look around me and I, I kind of would be, I, I can nearly pick out people that have left the area and come back against yeah. people that haven't. And that yeah, sounds yeah. very judgmental. Yeah. And I don't mean that, but I do think it broadens your horizons kind of. I think you're less, you're you're exposed to more and you're less shockable. And I, I, I just think it's good to move around a little bit. So I'm, I'm glad they are gone. Obviously, you'd hope they come back. But I think if they don't come back, it's probably because they've met someone or something makes them happy. And I'd be delighted to go and travel and visit them. <laughs> I'm always up for a journey. Yeah. So yeah, if it comes to it and I have to travel, I will. <laughs> so you continue to be a night nurse over 25 plus years as yeah. I was saying whilst raising five children yes you're working from what 11 at night till 7 in the morning yeah we work an 8 hour shift but I found it very family friendly you know it, I, I just felt it suited our house if we have you know if we'd both been working days when the children were very small it would have involved baby minders it would have involved you know what a lot of people do now would have involved hauling them out of bed really early to either get them to a baby minder who'd bring them on to school or one of us staying late or you know I used to say we'd probably be meeting on the roads and stopping cars and passing one in out I didn't want that you know I really didn't want that kind of so this you know I was happy to stay at home and, you know, be at home with them. Mm. And I did really enjoy that too. But then when this came up, it was an opportunity to be outside. It was my mum encouraged me to go back to work, actually. We lived in Kildare and my mum and dad were nearby. And it was my mum said, go and find something small and dad and I'll help. And she says, we don't want to be 
you know, <laughs> loads of hours. I was going, okay. So they used to drive over at the time, probably because Dublin is big and there was always work. I used to work every second Sunday night. I put myself on call every second Sunday night and usually I'd end up working. And mum and dad would drive over to us maybe about eight o'clock, nine o'clock on the su- Sunday evening. We'd have a cup of tea. I'd go to work. They'd sleep overnight. Like the kids were all great sleepers. And then they'd get up the next morning. I used to come in from work. We'd have a quick breakfast and I'd hop into bed. And at about one o'clock, mum would be right up. We're on our way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> top out of the bed. And because I was only doing one night, you know, I'd spring back then really easy. I'd sleep well Monday night and I'd be back, back into the role of things. And when did it become more full-time, shall we say? As the kids got bigger, you okay. know, kind of as the kids went into school. When when we still lived in Kildare, I had a neighbour who child-minded for other neighbours on the road, but the kids were gone to school. So at the drop of a hat, she was happy to do a day here or there. So I think I had two in school and one in play school and one at home when I started to do maybe a midweek night or something like that, because she'd be able to do the day and, yeah. you know, and that suited the house as well. And then uh, when we moved down to Clare, then I made contact with Milford Hospice in Limerick just to see, did they use night nursing? Kind of, you know, what was the scenario? And they said, oh, yeah, come in, we'll interview you. But in the meantime, they phoned the Irish Cancer Society and realised that I had been working for them in Dublin. So they said, oh, there's not even an interview needed. Just, you know, start whatever you like, kind of. So it worked really well. So the kids were, um, I think Lizzie was just in play school at that stage and the other three were in school. So I was able to, um, you know, kind of work weekends, you know, if I wanted to or during the week I could, you know, survive on two and a half hours once I dropped to play school, come home, have a quick sleep up, but then I'd be sleeping properly that night. And I've always been... Once I lie down, I sleep and I don't need a huge amount of sleep. Like I'm not someone that needs eight hours every night. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's good too. <laughs> yeah, because I I remember years ago working, uh, doing security and doing the night shift. And I, I always found that kind of around four or 5 a.m. You nearly went into this delirious mode because, <laughs> you know, the sugar levels drop or something. Everything just gets weird around you. Yeah. And yeah, you're just fighting through till till kind of seven o'clock or something like that. But it I, it was very much like a jet lag scenario. Yeah. But you're, you have that kind of switch on, switch off thing all the time with it. Yeah, I've been, I've been lucky since I was a student nurse. Like I slept really, really well from the offset. Like my, my really close friend, I'm meeting her now this weekend for our reunion weekend. Could not at the time, you know, kind of you could get sleeping tablets and work kind of, you know, she took everything and she still broke through it. <laughs> she'd get two hours sleep and she'd be awake for the rest of the day. Whereas I used to just lie down and sleep and sleep until the alarm went off and I'd get up and I'd be fine. And if I wanted to, even when I had kids, you know, sometimes I got in and I slept for an hour and a half and the alarm went off and I went out and went to see a school match and came back in and slept for another hour. And then that evening, once I'd have dinner done, I used to leave everything tomorrow so I'd hop back into bed and I might sleep for three or three and a half hours then if I was going back to work. So I'm lucky that I can switch on and switch off. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, I don't know, I can't explain. It's just the way I am. I don't need a massive amount of sleep. You know, like I can't go without sleep. I do need my sleep kind of. And I'd, you know, I'd be very, if I was doing a run of nights, I'd be very careful to make sure I got my sleep because I'd hate to get, you know, sleepy in work. And I do set an alarm in work, you know, because I'd always be afraid when I'm on my own, like, you know, as you say, three or four in the morning, kind of, you know, when things can dip. But I'd be really, you know, kind of geared towards that and I'd get up and walk around or, you know, I'd usually have a book on the go or I could be sewing or, you know, I just kind of try and break it up kind of. And, and you've, you know, your patient is beside you. 
like I'm not always beside the patient. Mm. Sometimes I'm with the patient all the time. Other times maybe a spouse is sleeping with them or family are sitting up with them and they just want you in the background. So I could be okay, in the kitchen yeah. kind of coming up and down and checking on them or being called by them. So, you know, it depends on each house exactly how you're how you're utilised. So when you're called to a house to do night nurse work, is that when the person's basically got days to live? Generally. Yes, generally it is. Now, sometimes um, it's what we call a respite night. So it might okay. be that, um, you know, maybe a family member that's caring for them, you know, needs a night off kind of maybe they haven't been sleeping terribly well or maybe the patient has been very unsettled and, you know, there's there's a change of medication going on and that's trying to be sorted. So they put us in to maybe observe or just to give respite, just so that the, you know, the family member or the friend can go away and get a decent night's sleep. But the majority of is end of life. Yeah, so the majority of the time kind of, you know, sort of, it's it, you know, you are talking days, sometimes weeks, you know, kind of sometimes we're put in a little bit earlier. The likes of a patient with a brain tumour kind of is, you know, debilitated usually for a longer period okay. kind of and they need a bit more support. So, yeah, but it is usually, you know, kind of days or a week or, you know, that sort of thing. Like I finished, I, I did six nights from the end of last week into, the, into Tuesday of mm. this week. So kind of going in the very first night there'd been a rapid deterioration and I think the team and the family thought that was going to be the night, the first night, Thursday night, and the patient made it right through to Wednesday morning. So yeah, you know, kind of it's, it's you know, you're not always able to plot it. I know you love what you do, but I would think that it's, you know, it's depressing or daunting going in knowing what the outcome is always going to be. Like, number one, I've never been afraid of death. You know, I think I was, I had a, a I've uh, seen it or, or would like, would you be afraid of death for yourself? I you? say no now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like I'm in the whole of my health kind yeah. of, you know, sort of, if I was to get a diagnosis kind of, I might react completely different because I don't think we can really tell. Yeah. But I've always felt I'm not afraid. My granny lived with us and she went to bed one Sunday afternoon had some sort of a change and died. And we were very lucky to have a neighbour in the house who was a qualified nurse. Now, I was a student nurse at the time and my mum called me upstairs. My immediate would have been, let's phone an ambulance. She would have been dead by the time the ambulance arrived. Like she was 84. She would have been dead by the time the ambulance arrived. They'd have had to take her away because, you know, that's what they have to do. Mm. They wouldn't be calling it at the time anyway, because there wasn't paramedics, there were just ambulance personnel. They'd have taken her out of our house, kind of, you know, and we'd have had to follow into A&E. It would have been awful. Our neighbour, who was the qualified nurse, was downstairs, and I said to him, call Bernadette, call Bernadette. She said, oh no, it's like asking her to do a nixer. No, no, I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I said, get Bernadette up. And Bernadette came in, like, I still remember, she came in the kitchen, she came in around the, the bedroom door and she said, Granny's leaving us. And she gathered us all and we all knelt around the bed and she started a rosary kind of and granny just slipped away. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, and I suppose any dealings I'd had with death in the hospital was where you called the cardiac arrest team or, you know, kind of all very dramatic and in a hospital yeah. setting. This was just lovely. I thought, what a lovely end to a life. So I suppose from that point of view, you know, I had a lovely experience of a death at home. You know, kind of when I was in my, I think I was 20 when that happened, kind of, you know, and then I did, you know, I was away from death then for a good few years. I worked in orthopaedics and spinal injuries, which is more about injured people and sick people. You very seldom saw death. Mm. So, you know, I, I was well away from it then for a good few years. But when I encountered it, you know, the next time round with that old man, I thought, oh, yeah, this is lovely. It is. You mentioned the rosary. Have you noticed a change 
in terms of the importance religion plays in the household 25 years ago compared to nowadays. Yes, yeah, absolutely. A huge, huge difference. When I started doing this work first, almost, almost every family, if the patient died in the middle of the night, called the priest. You know, almost every single one or the priest would have been out that day and, you know, they'd have said to you they've had the sacrament of the sick and, you know, he was seen by the priest or she was seen by the priest or, you know, it was very much a feature. And now I suppose there's less priests around as well and there's definitely less of a connection, kind of. There'd be so few houses now that, you know, prayers are said immediately afterwards. And like I have a lovely little booklet in my handbag, you know, for families that would like a prayer said, kind of. But even, you know, the saying of the rosary years ago, if someone in the house said, let's say a rosary, everybody knew, you know, kind of what to do. Yeah. And they don't tell, you know, it's so, yeah. so different. It really, really is. But like still, we come across priests, a lot of them elderly as they are kind of. But, you know, you can see they, they bring a piece to a house as well, a house where it's important, you know, certainly. But do you think people's spirituality then has changed over the years? It Like there are still very spiritual people around, you know, absolutely. You know, there certainly are kind of, and you know, it's interesting even like, you know, when the conversations come up, I love those conversations with people, you know, different faiths and different outlooks. And, you know, even the houses where, you know, you might have an elderly couple and you've two or three of the family that are absolutely, you know, oh yeah, they'd want prayer said and we've got the priest out, et cetera, et cetera. And there might be one or two that go, yeah, whatever, you know, couldn't be bothered yet. Then if prayers are said afterwards, even the ones that aren't bothered joined in because it's something we were raised with. It's something you're familiar with, kind of and like you can't but help notice. But it's that kind of it's like the the chant of it. Yeah, the, yeah it's a comfort. Kind of, yeah. yeah, it's a comfort. It's routine. It's something you're familiar with. It is like it's a really interesting study. It mm. certainly is. And it is lovely, you know, kind of as I always say, it is things like, you know, even asking for rosary beads, you're kind of gauging the house and is it appropriate? But I always ask, I say, you know, are they religious themselves or, you know, do they have beads or would they like to be buried with beads or have you thought about this kind of, and nine times out of 10, even there, there hasn't been a religious nod, they go, oh yeah, they do have rosary beads and they'll be in a drawer mm. and, you know, and I just place them around their hands and, you know, maybe later then someone takes them off if they, you know, if they're not that bothered. But Because you're probably dealing with a lot of family dynamics as well. Yeah, yeah you are, <laughs> yeah. You be a little bit of a politician sometimes, yeah. you know, yeah. It is. You're kind of you're you're dealing with different expectations and different people's understanding, and you know, kind of some people are very oh well, this is the road we're on, let's go for it. But others are kind of well, you know, if we got the doctor in and would an antibiotic help, and you know, kind of different people come to it at, at different rates. Mm. You know, kind of, and you have to be you know kind of mindful of that and respectful of that, and you know, you're you're kind of talking to two two different people with two separate expectations, yeah. so you have to kind of cover everything talking to them to make sure that you're, you know, you're not insulting one and, you know, kind of are, are seen to lean towards another or I suppose a lot of it is kind of say, well, you know, what do you think or, you know, what's your expectation or where do you think we are at the moment? Kind of, you know, it's even when people yeah, say, what okay. do you think? I'd say, well, you know, what's your understanding at the moment? Kind of because you have to gauge where they at, where they're at before you. But you even have scenarios where like there could be siblings there, but they're not speaking to each other due to some gripe that happened years ago. Or, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there definitely is. We often get, yeah, I always say, when the lights go low and sometimes, you know, people will opt to stay up with you. 
you know, which is fine. It's always lovely to have company. Kind of, and I always say to them, if you'd like to be here on your own, I'll sit out in the kitchen or, you know, if you'd like. But quite often, you know, they enjoy a bit of company kind of and you'd sit in talking. And that's when you hear the lovely stories about the the patient and their life. And you know, I always say there's a book in everybody. Mm. You know, people go, oh, I'm just very ordinary. But when you delve and you get the stories, kind of there's an absolute book in everybody on the planet. But then sometimes you'll get the, the family member who's ready to let loose and They'll fill you in on a whole load of things in the okay. middle of the night. <laughs> Sometimes the daytime girls yeah. say to us, we'll send in the detectives because like they come by day when you know, the place is lit up and everybody's in day wear and maybe the patient's downstairs in the sitting room and it's a completely different vibe. We go in at night when the lights are low and people are in their pajamas and the patient's in bed and we're in bedrooms whereas they're often in sitting rooms and kitchens and, you know. Yeah, the house is quiet. Yeah. Yeah, there certainly is kind of. So, yeah, you you get told all sorts of stories. <laughs> and what kind of words of wisdom would you give I to, it's, to it's, people out there? I, I from, think it's a little bit like I can remember when I was going into my first baby and one of my friends who was a, a, a midwife said to me, she said, the best advice I can give you is, she says, just listen to your midwife. Just be guided, be open to it. You know, she says, they're going to allow you to have your own thoughts, but they're the experienced person. So, be guided. And I was like, okay, fair enough. And I have always absolutely bought into that. You know, just look into the midwife's eyes, follow what they tell you and they'll take you through kind of. And I think likewise with death as well, not saying that the nurse is the expert, kind of they're not, but they generally have a lot more experience and a lot more time. And a bit like the delivery of a baby, the midwife's there all the time. The doctor comes and goes Mm -hmm. inside in houses. Generally, it's the nurses that have a little bit more time you know, to sit while other, you know, other services move in and out. The nurses kind of say, so I do think it's good to be open. And in general, my 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 thought on life is never say no to an invite, like literally okay. be open to everything and go with everything because you just never know when things are going to change. Yeah. You know, I've, I've laid out a lot of, you know, young people and I remember doing three men that were aged between 50 and 55 from one area inside a month that had all been diagnosed and died within three weeks, each of them. I remember thinking, wow, that's why you should just grab every opportunity and do what you can, you know, enjoy life. It must be so different from when it's an elderly person in bed compared to a young person. Like it is. Yeah, it absolutely is without a doubt. Like, you know, the the death of a child or, you know, a young parent or, you know, kind of someone in their 20s that's really only embarking on life is very, very striking. But then, as I always say, in every house I go into, it's their particular tough time, you know, regardless if it's your mom in her 80s, you know, dying, it's still a loss for whoever's involved in that house kind of. So while you're in that house. I always say there's no point in me saying to them, well, last week I was with a 25 year old mother of two, you know, because it's it's nearly dismissing what they're going through. So in each house, every individual case kind of counts as a a big happening in their lives, you know, And, and I think when people make the decision to die at home as well, it includes everybody, you know, kind of, it, you know, it draws in the family around them to support them kind of in a hospital, even though families can be in hospitals, you're going at the same tempo as the hospital. You know, the hospital has to turn over, it has to do certain things at certain mm-hmm. times. Whereas in a house, like I've on occasion done a full bed bath and a change of clothes at four o'clock in the morning because the patient has woken up at that stage and there might be another family member up and maybe they were sleepy during the day and didn't feel like it. 
we can do that at four o'clock in the morning. You know, we yeah. can provide that care and give that comfort and, you know, kind of make a difference. And that is so lovely. It's really special to be able to do that. But do you find young mothers fight more in the sense that they don't want to go? Yeah. For definite, and I, I, you know, I don't know the scientific findings behind it, but without a doubt, some of the, the toughest deaths I've seen are young mums with children. Most definitely, their 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 job is not done. You know, their job is absolutely not done, and it's not fair. And that's not to dismiss a dad's worth in yeah. a house. You know, a dad's worth, a, a mum's worth. You know, they're they're both equally important. But I think that the loss of a mom, you know, to young children kind of and, and the loss of the woman's hand in the house, even mm. things that a woman will notice that a man won't notice and things like that. It is. Yeah, it's really, really, really tough. They're, they were always the ones I struggled with, the ones that should just make your heart plummet when you get the hand over. You think, no, you know, and, and they, sometimes you wouldn't even meet the children. You know, I can remember being in one house and this little girl appeared into the room at four o'clock in the morning and she had a t-shirt on her and a pair of woolly tights, you know, and I'd say that's what dad had managed to, you know, put her to bed in or whatever, kind of with all that was going on. And you know, she kind of looked around the door and she was unfazed by me being there with her mom. And she came over and she sat up on my knee and we did a little chat and we looked in on mom and mom was very deeply asleep, kind of. And I leaned her in and let her kiss her mom. And after a while I said, we go back to bed and like the dad was fast asleep and I popped her back up the stairs and tucked her into the bed and came down. And I just thought, wow, oh, it just broke my heart. You know, mine were a little bit older than her, but it, it just really hit me. I thought, gosh, cannot be easy to go, you know, when you have smallies like that. And there was another little boy who wasn't quite two in a cot in another room. I just thought, wow, yeah, it's just not fair. How do you kind of look after yourself after a shift like that when someone has passed away? Um, I, I suppose talking, you know, talking does help kind of. I had when my kids were smaller, I do the school run and I had a friend that I'd sometimes go in and have a cup of tea with and I'd offload it and then go home and she used to always say, oh my God, you're gone home to sleep and I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Destroyed. Yeah. And equally, you know, my poor husband has heard a lot over the years as well, you know, come in, offload the story to him and, you know, I'd sleep better, you know, kind of because I've I've spoken about it. And I think... I was also very lucky that I had, you know, children that, you know, kind of distracted me. Like when I came in in the morning, Morris left to go to work. I had to get them out to school. So yeah. there was, you know, half an hour, an hour of mayhem, you know, school bags, lunch boxes, all that sort of thing. So that was my distraction coming home kind of. And now, you know, I have a few bodies that, you know, kind of, I suppose even the likes of WhatsApp has made it, you know, easier. There's a bunch of us that, you know, we'd be joined on a group or we'd look at each other's individual and you can spot if someone's still awake at one o'clock in the morning, they're probably working and you'd message away and they'd message back. And then sometimes driving home, we talk to each other, you know, and that's huge as well. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's great support. We're very lucky kind of, you know, I, well, I'm very lucky down here. I have a group of friends who are also night nurses. We we are quite connected. We, you know, we try and get together. Sometimes we meet in the milk market in Limerick on a Saturday morning. So if there's a few of us out working Friday night, we go in, we've breakfast there and then we go home. Or sometimes if they're not working, they'll get up and come in, yeah. you know, and we'll meet for a while kind of. And it's, it's not all work talk, but it's a blow off with yeah, similar yeah. like minded people and like experiences. So, yeah. And do you ever have dreams about the people that you would have? No, actually, I, I don't think, you know, they say everyone dreams. I'm not someone who remembers. I don't wake up and okay. remember my dreams. So I've occasionally, very occasionally um, kind of startled and thought and then thought, oh, no, no, that's in work. You know, kind of it could be. And it probably is that something is playing on my mind. Mm. 
I'm more likely to occasionally if I've left a house and I know somebody is very, very near, you know, kind of to dying as in, you know, so close. I know it's going to happen within an hour or two of me leaving the house. And we actually are able to stay on. And sometimes we do stay on, you know, kind of I finish work officially at seven, but I'm going out at seven and somebody is, you know, looking like they're going to die in the next 15 or 20 minutes. I'm not going to walk away and I'd stay on and then, you know, finish out what has to be done. But sometimes, you know, if you've settled them and you've given medication and everything is stable, well, then you would go because maybe, you know, they will last until later on the day or that night and we wouldn't stay on. You'd hand over to the day team and they'd come in. But occasionally if I've left a house that maybe the patient's had a very tough night or we've had to give a good bit of medication and you just are not quite certain that they're really settled. But, you know, they're very close to dying. Once the team would text me to say they die, I'll sleep really well then. So I've I've laid down to sleep, but I've tossed and turned and tossed and turned and checked my phone a few times. And then the texts come in to say that they've died, you know, peacefully. Mm. And you think, oh, they're safe. You know, and then then I sleep really well. And have you come across people just really scared those last few days? You do. Yeah, you do see frightened people. Yeah, you absolutely do. And, And they mightn't verbally express it, but you can see it in their face. And even if you said to them, are you afraid? They might say no, mm. but you do know. You, you just look at them and you think, oh, you are a little bit kind. And I've had people ask me, you know, what's it like? What's it like to die? Have you been with people who've died? You know, yes, I have. What's it like? You know, kind of. And, and you know, they clearly have wanted to ask that probably for quite a while, but maybe haven't asked because they're, you know, protecting family members or, you know, kind of had just haven't had the opportunity. But one on one at night, the lights are low and there's a lamp on. And and what know, is it like? Like what I always say to people is generally it's it's very gentle, you know, kind of more and more so as time goes on as well. Our meds have, you know, our medications have improved, kind of the use of them has improved, kind of. And it's generally just a very gentle release, kind of there's a change in the breathing, you know, kind of you just a change in the look kind of even when I'm leaving people and you're you're kind of saying to them, have you been with someone that's passed away before? No. Well, you know, I, I, I kind of tell you what I think you're looking for, but it's different in every case. I, I usually sum it, up, sum it up by saying, you know, because you just know you, it, something is different and mm. you know that life is ebbing away. And that's when you realise. And even for me, with all my experience, you know, sometimes you're thinking, will I call the family? Will I not? No, I think they're OK for another while. Now I'm going to call the family and something changes that makes you go. But generally it is, you know, over the the, the few days beforehand, they wake less, sleep more, eat less. You know, it's it's a gradual, you know, kind of coming down and then they're kind of probably asleep a lot kind of. And then it's a change in breathing and it's generally just, you know, very gentle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it is. Like it uh, is a fascinating subject. I is, have yeah. always been fascinated. Well, it's something, uh, you know, that we're all going to face, but it, it's like the elephant in the room that we never really talk about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. like we say, the Irish do death really well. And, mm. you know, and we absolutely, you know, like the other morning, the, the patient I'd been looking after, you know, passed away on my shift kind of at about 20 to 6 in the morning, like by a quarter to 7, the house was full. 
You know, there was a load of people there and you know, tea was being made and family were being supported kind of, you know, and you know, you know, that, that support is absolutely going to be there. And, mm. you know, kind of there'll be, you know, a reposal either in the house or in a funeral home and everybody turns up. And it's so different. Like my time in England, it was, you know, you had to be invited to a funeral. Yeah. You know, you didn't just turn up, whereas everybody turns up here, yeah, kind yeah, of, you yeah. know. And, yeah, it, it certainly is. It's, it's, it's interesting kind of, but quite often the elephant in the room is people haven't discussed it. That kind of when they've been involved with palliative care for a longer period, you know, and, and they've done that journey and they've had contact with teams and done work kind of quite often, you know, people are prepared and they have asked their questions and they have made their plans and they've had conversations. You know, they certainly have. This man that I was with, you know, this weekend gone out, like he was so unwell. Thursday night when I arrived, you know, they weren't even sure he'd be still alive when I arrived. And he woke at three in the morning and we did a little chat and he settled again. And at half three, he woke again and he was even brighter and, you know, kind of he, he was a little unsettled. I gave him a little bit of medication and he slept again. And then when I was going the next night, the Friday night, I phoned the house and he answered the phone to me. All right. <laughs> he answered and I was like, hello, is that? And he said, Sean. It's me. And I was like, oh, okay. Kind of. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and when I came into him, I said, that, that's a first. I said, usually it's family members. I said, I did not expect you to be answering the phone. And he just had a great day and he was as bright as a button. So, but he had said to his family, like they'd been, they'd been joking before I arrived. His daughter had said to them, I told half the neighborhood that you, you, you were dying. <laughs> And he'd actually said to her, he wanted to go out in the car. She said, I can't take you out in the car. All the neighbours will think I'm mad. I told them yesterday you were dying. And he thought this was hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah, they were able to joke about it in that house. But not every house can. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. And do you find sometimes that a, a patient is waiting for kind of green light from family members say, look, it's OK to go? Yeah, like it's certainly a thing, you know, not in every house. Like I remember in my training, I, I spent um, six six weeks in Crumlin Hospital doing my paediatric secondment. And there was a little girl, she was a member of the travelling community kind of, and she was dying and she was expected to have died at this stage, but she was holding on and the family kept saying, no, she's waiting for Grandad Joe to come. And Grandad Joe was time, no mobiles or anything. Grandad Joe was somewhere in the UK and you know they were using family networks to get word anyway and Grandad Joe was found and I think it took them about four or five days to find him and get him back to Ireland but she you know there was nothing keeping her alive kind of we just couldn't believe she was still alive as each day passed and Grandad Joe arrived and she passed away within about 15 minutes and you know we were all Amazing. I was kind of talking to other student nurses. It was probably one of our first experiences, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a child dying or probably even death. You know, we were still early in our training, but the, the family just couldn't. Yeah, they, they knew she'd wait. You know, she'd absolutely wait. And, and we do see that, that sometimes there's a child traveling from America or Australia and they appear to hold on, you know, those few days. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe they were going to hold on anyway. You don't know. But it certainly gives comfort to people to know that, you know, they're they're hanging on or they've waited for them to arrive. Like, you know, there's whole conversations around that, that yeah. sometimes you think, really? But you know what? It's it's comforting. You know, if it's comforting for them to think that, well, and maybe it did happen. You know, I, I don't know, kind of, as I say, I can't prove it scientifically yeah, that people wait. But one of the other things as well that I suppose can't be proven scientifically is this story that people before they pass away they see loved ones who have previously passed away yeah like I, i've certainly seen that you know people reaching out 
and you kind of think you're sometimes they're looking past you and they put their hand up and you think of someone coming into the room behind and they haven't or they'll speak about their mother. And I, I've seen it a little bit, but sometimes family members will tell you when you arrive at night, they'll say oh, earlier on this evening now, you know, she was calling for her mother and her mother died 20 years ago. But, you know, kind of or, or she said that someone was nearby. So, again, you know, I think it's a faith thing kind mm. of, you know, and it's like I certainly wouldn't, you know, burst their bubble. I always say it's a bit like ghosts. I personally don't believe in ghosts. But if someone tells me they've seen a ghost, I'm not going to say you didn't because mm. maybe that's their experience. Maybe I'm not open to it or maybe they just don't come to me. You know, I, I just feel there are certain things that you kind of have to take. If, if that's what people really believe, well, then that's their belief. And I just have to acknowledge it and accept it. Have you come across any night nurses where the work just took a, a real bad toll on them? I've, I've come across people that, you know, tried it and knew they didn't like it. Yeah, you know, I, I have yeah. come across that just knew it wasn't for them, you know, and, and I think, you know, if it's not for you, don't do it. Like that's what we always say, our group that we get together with, we always say, how lucky were we? that we found a job that we like so much, you know, and that we can do kind of. And, you know, I'd be grateful for that, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like there's so many different areas of nursing to go into. I never in my wildest dreams thought this is where I'd end up, but I'm so glad I did. You know, I, I really am kind of, a, you know, I, 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 I enjoy it. I, I hope I'm good at it kind of, you know, sort of. And it's, it's just, it's a real privilege. It's a real honour to be in people's homes, even like so I always say, we're complete strangers to them and they open the door, they let us in, you know, they go off up to bed, you know, they kind of say, you know, you don't mind the dog there. No, I don't mind the dog. Kind of, you're here with the family dog. And sometimes there's handbags left out and, you know, kind of, they just accept that you've come into their house to help and, and, and they trust you. And that's, that's huge. Yeah. It's really huge. And you've probably seen such different class and lifestyle as well of the houses you visited. Yeah, everything, everything. Absolutely. Kind of, you know, from the poorest of people to people that are so well off kind of and it, it's like I say it doesn't make any difference you mm -hmm. know what's in the background kind of you know and I, I've been in areas both Dublin and Limerick kind of that would be you know areas that would make the headlines with loads of negative you know negative comments and negative occurrences kind of and met the nicest and the best of people you know people have taken their cars out of their driveway to put mine in to make it safe you know kind of family members lifting my bags in and out I've had families that have gone off and, you know, sought an armchair from a neighbouring house to make sure that I'm comfortable and, you know, little Trey sandwiches made up and, you yeah. know, people just are so, so, so good kind of, you know, sort of, you know, both ends of the spectrum kind of. I also say it doesn't really make any difference. You know, it really, really doesn't kind of. I think once somebody has made the decision you know, to stay at home and be cared for at home kind of and, and that family can support them kind of, it's you know, it's just, it's huge kind of. And not every family, you know, supports as well as others. Kind of some people are not terribly able for it and, you know, kind of don't like to get involved in the physical care. And when they agree to it, they don't realise that this would be part of it going on. Yeah. So you kind of have to take them and teach them and take them through it kind of. And you can see it's clearly not their comfort. It's not their bag. But, you know, kind of we pull on our gloves and show them what to do and kind of, you know, hope that we're teaching them properly and that they'll have a go themselves. Like it is, it's, it's essentially it's full on nursing that would have been traditionally done in the community years ago because people just died in their homes years ago. And then it all changed into hospitals, kind of. But I think, you know, the surveys that are done now, so many more people are choosing, you know, home as the place they'd like to die in, whether it's possible or not. 
not everyone, you know, it doesn't suit everybody kind of, it, you know, sometimes something happens that means they have to be hospitalized and they can yeah. be afforded that. But when they can, it's great. And what would you be doing then, you know, if you're just in a room on your own with someone all through the night, I know you're monitoring them, you might be giving them extra medication and so on, but like. Yeah. How do I pass the time? Yeah. I pass the time with reading. I enjoy reading. I in, write an occasional letter still, kind of like from living abroad. I have some friends and nine times out of 10 now it's WhatsApp, you know, friends yeah. in Australia and friends in, in England, kind of it's WhatsApp messages and chatting over FaceTime and stuff like that. But I do occasionally write a letter. I have two friends that we still letter write to each Love other, that, one yeah. in the UK and one in Australia. And every so often I'll do an epic, you know, and off that goes. And then you'd be hoping you get one in return that kind of puts <laughs> it on them to write back. Yeah. So you're waiting for that. Uh, I've iPad now, kind of, you know, I have stuff downloaded to watch, kind of catch up on things like that just reading articles kind of obviously podcasts like yourself that's coming in now yeah. I'm just about to set up my phone now so that I can get them in <laughs> on my phone and you know things yeah small things and chatting to family members sometimes chatting to the patient you know you have the loveliest of conversations in the middle of the night kind of you know they might wait to go to the bathroom or something like that and when they go back in then kind of you know as you're settled they were chatting they might say something and then you know they're awake kind of and so yeah i've had some really nice conversations at bedsides in the middle of the night you know telling me things they did or what they worked at or yeah it's just and it's sometimes that you can just move them around in the bed and then suddenly like the 10 minutes later they could be gone yeah yeah sometimes it can be straight after being repositioned and maybe they're going to die anyway yeah, kind yeah. of but like we don't we don't not reposition them you know, in case they die, we reposition them for comfort, yeah. you know, and that's a little bit of a battle sometimes with families that go, oh, no, I'm afraid if you turn them, you know, they'll die, you know, and yet you have to respect that. And we say, OK, you know, OK, yeah, you know, if you're afraid, then we leave kind of. And then, you know, maybe after a little while, I'd say, well, actually, you know, I'd, I'd be afraid now their hip becomes sore. We'll move them a little bit, you know, kind of. And, and, and like I have been in houses where I have been expressly told <laughs> not to move the patient and I don't, you know, and I say to them, well, my advice is, mm. but, you know, I can't wade in over family members kind of, you know, and you think. Yeah, I know. And it's sad because obviously the person is going to die. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to die. But they're just you know, not ready to let go. Yeah. Or they're, they're just fearful that, you know, that, well, if we do this thing, this will be what will tip them over the edge. Yeah. You know, I usually say to people, you know, if I'm, you know, chatting to them and saying, I really think a reposition is important. And I will say, I can't guarantee that, you know, when I turn them, that they won't have a change and die. But I can't guarantee that that won't happen anyway. Mm. You know, so, you know, my advice is, you know, let's move them. And, you know, you'd reassure them that we, you know, maybe bring two in extra people and we've lovely slide sheets. Now we can pop in underneath it yeah, and do yeah. it gently. And, you know, kind of you'd reassure them and do it as, as, you know, or sometimes they just don't want to be in the room to see it. And you say, OK, that's fine. You know, kind of if, if you want to leave the room and then I'll call you back in a few minutes. So, yeah. Yeah, you kind of have to go with, yeah. you know, kind of what's Because you're trying to look after the patient, but you're trying to just yeah. work with the people in the room as well. Yeah, you have the care of both, really. Yeah, you you know, kind of, yeah, you do. Yeah. Like you do. I, like I, I would always say that kind of summing up the job. Part of the job is looking after the patient, but part of the job is also the care of their family or, or close friends, you know, whoever is involved in, in that little circle caring for them. Yeah, and sometimes it is friends. You know, I've been in the houses kind of, I was in it gorgeous a really old you know bachelor's cottage in the west of ireland right near a cliff mm. and the little man was one of these 
very headstrong, difficult little old Irish man that was going to do it his own way. And he had fought having help in for so long. And until I arrived, his neighbour down the road, a lady down the road who was so good to him, used to get up three times a night and drive her car up his lane with her lights off so that he wouldn't know she was coming, park away, walk up. And she used to say when she'd be leaving him every night, she used to leave his curtains parted a little bit so she could see his bed. And she said she'd come and check just to make sure he hadn't had a fall. Yeah. And once he was in the bed, then she'd go back down again. And wow. like he thought he was going it solo. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> he really thought he was doing all this without any help. And this lady was getting up three times a night for about three weeks. Wow. Yeah, until we came in. Yeah, and he wasn't particularly impressed I was there, but he put up with me. <laughs> Is there a, a particular moment that, you know, a particular family or anything that stands out? Um, yeah, I, like I, I do particularly remember a young mum that just fought so hard. So, and there was a lot of family dynamics. You know, there was things that I didn't discover until the night she died. And then everything kind of made sense of why the fight was so hard. And there'd been a lot of loss in the family, kind of, you know, her mom, her sisters with breast cancer. She was dying of breast cancer, brothers with bowel cancer. There had been a real strong history, but she absolutely went to the edge so many times. And I'd be about to say yes, and she'd <gasps> pull another breath. And yeah, it, 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 she, she sticks in my mind. She really does. And she'd... She'd lost her hearing in the last few weeks of her life, like the, the, the cancer had gone to her brain. And, you know, I remember meeting her husband years after and he said to me, do you think she could hear us that last night? You know, and I hadn't bumped into him in the meantime. Well, I thought, oh, you know, probably four or five years afterwards, that was the question in his head. Could she hear us that night? You know, when we were reassuring her, like, and I was saying, to him, I don't know. But yes, I like to think so. You know, I like to think that, you know, she knew you were there and yeah. she was comforted by your presence. And, you know, but I don't know. But yes, yeah, she absolutely, you know, sticks in my head. And, you know, some elderly people as well. And sometimes even families that you're with for maybe a longer period, you know, kind of I was with one elderly lady at the start of COVID for the best part of two and a half months, you know, for quite a while she was expected to die and then she didn't kind of. And, you know, we dipped in and then we dipped out and we dipped in again, kind of. And I was there the morning she passed away. I had actually stayed on a little bit late just chatting to her daughter and I just went back in to have one little more peep. And it was literally her two daughters and myself and a day nurse that had been involved quite a bit were all there as she passed away. And her daughter, I'm, I'm still in contact with her daughter. I see her when she comes home from England, kind of, I'm going to go over and visit her. And she always says, wasn't that just meant to be? You know, the four of us, we were all there, yeah. you know, kind of. And yeah, things like that stick in your head. kind of. And, you know, my youngest patient was six weeks, which was, you know, terribly sad, the loss of a baby. My oldest patient was 101. And she had, I think it was 12 or 13 children. Big, big family. A lot of them had emigrated to England and they were all home. They were in their 70s. I think her son was 80, her eldest son or 81. She'd been, you know, a young enough mum. And we were, she was in a tiny little bedroom, kind of a single bed that there was only room for us to stand outside, kind of. And the son had said to me the first night I arrived, we were looking down at her in the bed and he said, you know, 101. He said, do you know that woman had a heart attack when she was 51? For the last 50 years, he says, our byword has been, don't tell that to mother, it'll kill her. <laughs> yeah, and he roared laughing yeah, 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 yeah. and you just think you know those little anecdotes that stick in your head yeah they protected her for 50 yeah, yeah. years from any bad news in case it killed her 
Hillary, tell me about the three coins that you carry around in your work bag every day. In my work bag, I have three coins wrapped in hospital tape that I've had since my very first ward. On my very first ward, and I can remember the patient's name. He passed away in 1984. This man, he was a Longford man in hospital in Dublin. No, a Leitrim man in hospital in Dublin. He came up for surgery and he survived the surgery and did quite well, but then had a complication and died. And it was my very first ward. And on your very first ward, you're so afraid of the patients, you will mop floors yeah. and clean windows rather than, you know, engage. And he was my go-to. If I had nothing to do, I used to go and take him for a walk. He was great company. He'd link into your arm. We'd walk up and down the corridor and you'd be seen to do something. And he had a real old radio that was held together by tape and it was always gone to RTE1. And when we'd come in the morning to make the beds, I used to say to him, go on, do you mind? Mm. And we'd twiddle the dial and we'd get on one of the pirate stations and we'd have some nice music. And once we'd clear off, he'd go back to RTE1. So he was kind of my pet patient. And we were walking one of the days and he was trying to give me something into my hand. What's that? It was a note. And I said, no, no, no. And we'd been expressly told, no. you cannot take it. And I said, no, 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 no. I can't, I can't, I can't. I said, we're not allowed. I could be fired. Said, no, no, take this. I said, no, I can't. And later on the day, I was back in beside his bed and he dropped something into my pocket. Kind of when I put it, he says to me, three coins, three coins. They're your lucky coins. Keep those as your lucky coins. And they were a two pence, a five pence and a one pence. So eight pence in total. And I put hospital tape around them this way and then that way. So they're secured in it. And I've carried it in my work pocket every time I wore a uniform. And we wear civvies now in this job, but it's in my work bag with me every single day. I carry it. And I I do remember his name. You know, I absolutely sticks. That sticks in my head. And this season as well, we're asking people to bring in something special to them, something of significance. Okay. So what did you bring in today, Hilary? What I have, it's in my handbag and it's a pin of a little hair and the the colouring is significant. It's a baby I nursed again during COVID and her mom was somehow attached to our service. She was a nurse within the system that I work in and um, her first baby and very sadly, you know, there was something detected just before she was delivered. And when she was delivered, they knew she wasn't going to survive, but they got to bring her home. And I was the night nurse that went into them the first night and then happened to stay with them right through until she passed away. And afterwards, her mom, um, you know, I've, I've kept in contact with her. They have a little boy now who I go over to see, gorgeous little boy. But obviously their darling little girl is not forgotten. She's the big sister in the house. But her mom gave me this little pin of um, a rabbit, kind of a rabbit or a hare, kind of. I'm never too sure what it is because they live out in the countryside and you could see these outside the windows, et cetera, et cetera, kind of. And it's her colour that's on the pin as well that they associate with her. So um, they gave me this as a remembrance of her, you know, and my time with them. And uh, yeah, it's really precious to me. So I take it everywhere with me and kind of I'm away on a trip. I usually take a photograph kind of, you know, and send it thinking of our little, our lovely little girl. Yeah, it was a real privilege. And actually, I remember her saying after the, I had left the morning she passed away. I had left them and then she passed away a few hours later. And I went back to them that evening and she was still in the house. And she said when she picked her up, she could still smell my perfume. You know, I, 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 my perfume kind of had transferred onto her and her sister bought her a bottle of that perfume for her birthday. And she was doing a, a memory box. And I actually had a soap, 
attached to the perfume that was unopened. So I brought her over the soap to have in the memory box, just the, the, the same smell kind of, you know, I, I was really touched and they were actually asleep in the bedroom above me. Kind of, I had her up one night <laughs> and I wouldn't be the best singer in the world, but I was singing to her. And when I came down in the morning, they were going, nice rendition. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they were thinking would she ever shut up yeah, don't represent us in the Eurovision yeah, yeah. <laughs> for definite well you know I, I, I know you don't like it being said but so many people say it and I agree with them that you are like angels that come to people's homes yeah like people do say that you know and, and, and I do get you know it's a great job it's it's you know and, and you know I think we do a good job kind of the angels will always make me a little bit uneasy I kind of just think we're just very lucky that we're nurses with a particular set of skills that find this job that, you know, suits us and our skills suit it. You know, kind of it's 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 very basic nursing care that we all learned, you know, as student nurses. It's probably why I went into nursing. You know, I've never liked ICU. I don't like machinery. I don't like, you know, buzzers and, and sounds kind of. I always loved being beside a bed and chatting to people and, you know, making them comfortable, flipping a pillow or freshening them up or kind of that to me was the sort of nursing that interested me. And I'm lucky, you know, 40 years on to still be able to do it. Congrats. Thank ah. you so much for joining me on Gary Talks. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Gary. 